passage. We are uh, in the middle of our called series. We're talking about the sevenfold calling of every believer. What has God called us to? Well, we're in Christ. What does he have for us? And so, uh, so far we've talked about how um, God has called every believer to a couple things. First one is to a new life, right? You're born again. You're born into something new. It's a new way of living. And what is that new way of living? We found out part of it is you're called into discipleship. God wants you to follow him. Like when you became a Christian, you didn't ask Jesus to follow you because he wouldn't have been interested. But he invites you to follow him. And it's this whole different way of life. And in that, we discover that we are some pretty fantastic things. Like For starters, every one of us are missionaries. We get to be missionaries right where God put us. And that's pretty amazing. We have purpose where we live. And because we're missionaries, we, it's not surprising that we're all evangelists. We all have been given the right by God to help people explain the gospel to them, help them take t- steps of faith and faithfulness, and, and help them uh, start that new life themselves. And in this, we don't just bring people to faith. Every one of us are called to be disciplers. Every believer has the right and been authorized by God to help other Christians grow up in their faith. Of course, we can only help other people grow as much as we have. You can only take people as far as you've gone. So every one of us is also called to continue to mature and to grow. And how cool is that? And of course, how do we do this? Well, we don't do it alone. None of us can do it alone, right? So we are called to community. That's why God has brought, brought us together into the body of Christ. In fact, he calls the church, we're, we're, the ecclesia, the called out ones, called out from this world, but called together. And we're supposed to do this together. So remember a memory verse last week, because you are the body of Christ and every, each one of us is a part of it. The, he's called us in amazing things. We, we're, the, we're the temple of the Holy Spirit together. And that God's spirit dwells amongst us. But not only that, we said that, that we are uh, his, his, uh, his family, his children of God. We're not just family, but we we're also called the bride of Christ. That's a pretty good relationship. And that's the bride of Christ. We we're also the very body of Christ. Like God wants us to work together and wants to be with us. How cool is that? Now we're all of these amazing things. And yet some people want to take a step back and say, well, how do we know we're these things? Because all of that is really fantastic. And have you ever heard something that says, if it sounds too good to be true, it probably is? And that was a really a big check for me when I heard about the gospel. Right? Because our faith is such fantastic news, it, it makes us wonder, is it real? And so that's what we're going to talk about today. We're called, one of the things that we're called to as Christians is that we are called to faith. Now, a lot of times people think of faith and they think, well, it's just a wish, wishful thinking, right? Like, oh, I hope this is going to happen. I'm just going to have faith like it's some kind of a very weak, I'm going I'm to kill my intellect so I can accept this. And that is not what faith is at all. In fact, today's memory verse comes to us from Hebrews 11.1, 1, the chapter of the Hall of Fame of Faith. And it starts out with this. It says, now faith is confidence of what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. We're going to talk about that today, but what this means. Confidence, assurance, that's faith. So we're going to talk about this today. Um, We've been called to faith. This is what faith is. So the first thing we see that faith is, is confidence in what we hope for. Confidence. There's a difference between confidence and and just like, "Ah, I I hope so. Confidence. When we talk about confidence, we're talking about an objective standard. That's what I'm confident about, things that are objectively can be proven true. That's what I'm absolutely confident about, right? I'm not confident about things that I can't test. I'm confident about things that have been tested and proven. That's what I'm confident about. So we're talking about confidence and faith. It starts with the, the, basically the, the scientific reliability of our, of our claims, of our hope. Do they match reality? Can we have confidence in them? It's one of the reasons I became a Christian. I tried different faiths. I went to other faith places all right, I, before I made up my mind. And you know, one of the things I discovered is that Christianity is unique in the fact that it, in, it invites investigation. It says, let's test this because we want to worship truth. In fact, Jesus said, "True, his worshipers will worship him in spirit and in truth. That's why Christians say we have to figure out what is true. And so we have entire studies set up as Christians that you can get your PhD in this saying, look, can I, can I test this? Is it absolutely true or is it not? Christianity is not based on a uh, trust me story. It isn't some guy who walked into a cave and said, I had this spiritual experience, trust me. Or I've got these special kind of plates and they say these things. No, you can't see them, but trust me. This is what they say. Christianity is not that way. Christianity is not some guy sitting on a mountaintop saying, trust me, I know better how to live a life than you do. That's not how it works. Christianity is not based upon trust me at all. Christianity is based upon test me and know that I'm true. That's why we have confidence. What kind of these things? How can we test our faith? Well, God's given us some objective things. First thing is fulfilled prophecy. 
Fulfilled prophecy. You say, well, that seems awfully spiritual. Oh, yes, but it's also very, very much historical. You see, prophecies about the Messiah, there's over 300 of them in the Old Testament. Now, we know the Old Testament was written before the New Testament. Why? It started because it started old, right? But there's more than that. Because the Jews, that was their Bible. And the Jews had no interest of following Jesus once he came. Not all of them, right? They didn't alter it. They have the tradition and the history, and they've been worshiping and reading those very same texts, and they still read them still today. Not only that, we have archaeological evidence. We have manuscript copies that predate Christianity. Right? So we have copies of things that were written that we absolutely know came before Jesus was born. That's pretty good evidence that these things predated Christianity. And a lot of those things have prophecies about the Messiah. And what are some of these prophecies? Well, there is a prophecy. Um, would you go back one slide for me? Because there's, there's one I don't want to miss, and this is it. 700 years before Jesus came, there was uh, this prophet named Micah. Okay, 700 years. Think about how far 700 years is ago. 700 years. We've been a country for 200 700 years before Jesus was born, there's a prophet named Micah, and Micah had this crazy idea as a prophet. He said, the Messiah is going to come, but you know, I predict he's going to be born in Bethlehem and Judea. That was crazy talk. If Bethlehem is smaller than Lyons, Colorado. If you think about, we're going to have a big Messiah, he's going to come and save us, you don't pick Bethlehem. It's Sticksville. Right? It's where the sheep are, the, the shepherds, and the, it's not a place that you would think of as a clean, holy, powerful place for a Messiah to be born. Why Bethlehem? Well, it just happens that King David was also born in that little tiny village, but that's a pretty big prediction. Messiah's going to come. He's not going to be born in Shechem. He's not going to be born in Jerusalem. He's going to be born in, in Sticksville. That's a pretty good, I mean, it nails it. Not many people were born in Bethlehem. Gives us an idea of maybe who he'd be. You know what, 700 years before Jesus, and there's another, there was, a, there was a contemporary of Micah, his name was Isaiah. And he predicted that something a little, a, a little bit uh, more crazy. He said, yeah, when that Messiah is born, um, he's going to be born of a virgin, which is, again, kind of crazy. I don't know if you know about biology, but that doesn't normally happen, right? So that would be a sign for people. It'd be like, virgin, baby, wow, right? Because there's not many babies born that way. But he goes on, if that wasn't enough, he, he cranks it up a, a level. And he says, not only are we born of a virgin, but he'll be called Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Now, we're comfortable with this because we sing about it at Christmas time, you know, Emmanuel, all that. No, no, this was a Jewish prophet speaking to Jewish people who were very, very monotheistic, correct? To suggest that God would be a person could have gotten him killed easily. He predicted the impossible for a Jewish prophet in his mind, the, the infinite God, the God who says that there's not going to be graven idols, there's not going to be even idols or anything, an image even of me because I am too big for those things, for God then to come as a human, to be known as a human, this holy, inapproachable God will show up? That was crazy talk! But Jesus showed up and he said, I am God with you. Born in Bethlehem, by the way. You know, 700 years is pretty good, but 1,000 years is a little bit older. So let's go 1,000 years before Jesus was born. It's about 1020 B.C. We have this, this uh, psalm that was written, Psalm 22. And Psalm 22, if you read it today, you will think, most people think that it was actually written after the crucifixion. In fact, there were people who, before archaeology, when they read Psalm 22, they made the crazy uh, assertion that, Christians inserted Psalm 22 into the Jewish Bible because of how accurate it describes the crucifixion. Of course, all the Jewish people were very offended by that and said, no, 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 we've had this psalm for a long time. Psalm 22 is amazing. A thousand years before Jesus shows up, this psalmist has the audacity to predict that the Messiah would come and he would suffer. And he wouldn't just suffer, but that his clothes, as he was being killed, would be gambled by off. The, the people would throw lots to figure out who was going to keep his clothes. Jesus went on the cross. The soldiers gambled with lots. They, they rolled dice to figure out who could keep his clothes. That's a pretty weirdly specific prediction. 
Oh, but it gets better. Said that this Messiah, this Jewish Messiah, who this, this would be, when he died, would be surrounded by Gentiles. They call them dogs, right? Even Jesus called Gentiles dogs at one point, right? And he says, listen, this Messiah would be surrounded by, by dogs that were trying to, that were not kind to him. And Jesus was surrounded by Roman soldiers. That's a strangely accurate prediction. But not just that. It said that while he was on the cross, that those people around him would be, would be mocking him and ridiculing him. That as he died, the, very, the Jewish people that were around him would be rejecting him, even though he was supposed to be their savior. Now that's counterintuitive, but it happened. Over that you say, well, that's, you know, Nostradamus-y kind of stuff. People were upset or whatever. We can kind of twist our minds and think. Think about this one. It said that when he was, when he was dying, this, this suffering savior would say, I'm thirsty would actually be one of the causes or things that he would complain about while he is on the cross. And, of course, Jesus says, I'm thirsty. Why add that detail? But it's there. Not only was that, something else that was very, very strangely specific is saying that his hands and his feet would be pierced. Which is really strange when you understand that crucifixion hadn't even been invented, wouldn't be invented for another couple centuries. That's pretty amazing. And then he goes on to say, not only would his hands and feet be pierced, Right? And, but, uh, while, while he's dying there, none, none of his bones would be broken. Now you find in the, the Roman soldiers, they were going to ba- break Jesus' legs because they wanted to kill him faster, but he was already dead. No bones broken. Fascinating. But if that wasn't enough, it goes on. And it says, after this suffering servant dies, he will come back to life. <laughs> and he would never die again. Now, Nobody took that serious. Nobody. They think, oh, it's poetic. Sir, he's going to die, but they you know, like in memory or whatever, comes back and Jesus is like, nope, boom, I'm back. <laughs> we should have seen it coming a thousand years in advance. This was not a pro-Christian psalm that was written after the crucifixion. This was written a thousand years before he even showed up. You know, there's over 300 prophecies of Jesus. 425. Malachi, last prophet that prophesies about Jesus. Last prophet before Jesus shows up. 400 years before he shows up. Malachi, he says, you know what? Jesus is going to be, the, the, the Messiah is going to be contemporary of the temple. And back then, everyone was like, well, duh, the temple's in Jerusalem. It's going to always be in Jerusalem. No, no, it wasn't. Because after AD 70, The Romans destroyed the temple and it's never been rebuilt. And just to make sure it was never going to be rebuilt, God allowed the Muslims to build the dome and the rock on top of it. That lets us know a time frame when the Messiah had to show up. And guess Jesus was in that very short window when there was only a thousand years in human history where the temple actually stood. And a lot more people have been born outside of that thousand years than have been born inside of it. And not only did Micah give that, Zechariah, 500 years before Jesus came, he said the Messiah would be betrayed. And he wouldn't just be betrayed by somebody close close to him. He said he would be betrayed. He'd be sold, forget this, 30 pieces of silver. And not only would he be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver, which is very specific, he said that silver, that transaction, the betrayal, would take place in the temple. Of all places, that would be the last place you would think of betraying the Messiah. He said, no, no, it's going to happen in it, that 30 pieces are going to be cha- exchanged in the temple. And if that wasn't enough, then he goes on to say, and that 30 pieces of silver is going to be used, what it's going to buy after it's paid for Jesus' uh, betrayal, it's going to be used to buy a potter's field. That is really weirdly specific. How many artists do you know who own property? <laughs> right? He said, we're going to buy a potter's field with that. And of course, we find that the night that Jesus betrayed we have uh, one of his disciples goes and goes in the temple. Judas Iscariot, and he goes and he says to the, the priest, he says, I'll sell Jesus, I'll whereabouts to you. And the price? 30 pieces of silver. And after he makes the exchange, Judas is like, I made a bad choice. And so he goes and he kills himself, hangs himself. And he, where does he hang himself? On a potter's field. And of course, the Jewish uh, religious people who had no problem paying blood money to, so they could go and kill Jesus. Once they, they were like, well, we can't use this money, put it back in the temple, it's blood money. So what do they use that 30 pieces of silver for? They buy a, that potter's field. 
500 years before Jesus came. You know, it's, it's not as though that, that, uh, that God left it up to chance, like we would just wonder who this Messiah was. Right? It's not as though we feel like we've got confidence about who Jesus is. It's scientifically, we have absolute confidence. There was a guy whose uh, name was Peter Stoner, and there was another guy, Robert uh, Newman. They wrote a book called Science Speaks. Now, they were both mathematicians, and they wrote something on probability, and it's, that's what the book is about, probability. And they decided they were going to figure out what was the probability that Jesus was Messiah based upon the, these, uh, these prophecies. Now, um, they got about eight prophecies deep, and they said it's ridiculous it's absolutely certain. In fact, how certain was it? Well, they got eight prophecies. Now, they didn't pick prophecies like born of a virgin because those are things that are supernatural. They picked natural prophecies that people can do. Things like this. They said, okay, he's got to be a man because the first prophecy of the Messiah is in Genesis where it says it would be a man, right? So that eliminates half of the human population. So we know the Messiah is going to be a man. What are the odds that this person be a man? Well, uh, one in two, right? So that's where they start. And then they go on and say, okay, well, he's not just going to be a man. He's going to be a child of Abraham. So he's going to be in that lineage. Okay? So they narrow it down to that. And they say, okay, not just a child of of Abraham, but it's going to be in a tribe of Levi. So one of the 12 tribes of Israel is going to be in this tribe. So there's far fewer people born in that tribe than in the entire thing of Israel, right? And not only is he going to be born there in that tribe, but he's also going to be descendant of King David, a direct descendant. What are the odds? And not only a direct descendant of King David, but he's going to be born in the very city that David was born in, in Bethlehem, which very few people were born in Bethlehem and far fewer people born in Bethlehem that were actually related direct descendants of David. And you get the idea. They go down, down, down. And then also they say that he would be born in that city during a time that the temple existed. They take eight prophecies and they figured out the odds, and this was attested by, for, by the American Scientific Association. It was a peer-reviewed study. And they discovered that it was, in order just to fulfill those eight, the odds of Jesus even fulfilling eight of the prophecies was 1 times 10 to the 17th power. If you had an idea what 1 times 10 to the 17th power is, I, I, I put it out there for you so you could see. This is a big number. Like, if you had one to the 17th power in, in, in money, your kids and your grandkids and everyone in your generations for the rest of time would never, ever have to work. That's a lot of money, right? How much money is one time? How big is that? Well, you know Texas? Texas is a big state. Have you ever driven across Texas? It just doesn't ever feel like it's going to end. You're like, we're still in Texas? Yeah, we're still in Texas. You could drive through Europe almost faster than you could drive through Texas. It's huge. They say, okay, in Texas, if you, you know, remember what silver dollars look like? You ever seen those silver dollars? It's about that big. Flat. So if you take silver dollars, you could fill Texas with silver dollars two feet deep. That's one times 10 to the 17th power. All of Texas. Now, those of you who been in Texas, you're like, that's huge. Right? Two feet deep. You know what a two-foot snowstorm looks like? Two feet deep full of these. Now, the odds that Jesus would just fulfill eight of these is this. You would color one of those coins blue. And you would throw it somewhere in the middle of Texas and stir it all up so it's somewhere randomly. And then you would take uh, some blind guy and and have him just fly over Texas and kick him out of the airplane and he's got a parachute on and he opens his parachute up and he floats down and as soon as he lands, he goes down and he hits the ground and he grabs a coin and as he rolls and stands up, it's the blue coin. That's one times, at one and, and 10 to the 17th power. That's the odds. That's only for one in eight. There are 300 prophecies of the Messiah. See, Jesus didn't leave it up to chance. God didn't leave it up to chance. He said, this guy. You know, there haven't even been one times 10 to the 17th power humans born. God wanted us to know that Jesus was the Messiah. He didn't say, trust me. He said, test me. And he proved it. You know, I did something for you because there's 300 prophecies, but some of them are difficult because we're not Jewish and not historians and all that kind of stuff. But there's about 40 prophecies that are pretty easy to understand. 40, which again is way more than eight. If you want to see, I, I've created a sheet for you. So if you want to go see in the New Testament, in the Old Testament, what the prophecies were in the Old Testament, where they've been fulfilled in the New Testament, you can pick up a, a sheet of this. I got it printed out and they're in the foyer uh, right next to those books that we give away. Uh, just because I like you, right? That's why I did it. All right. So we got fulfilled prophecy, but we also have other things. It's not just prophecy. We've got reliable testimony. So you've got testimony of Jesus and who he was and what he claimed to be. That, that's the legal standard, not just the scientific, but the legal standard. So like, if you go to a court of law, they don't say scientifically prove this crime was committed because that's impossible. You can't repeat 
uh, you know, the, the crime, you, so you could observe it. You're not like, okay, we'll take the victim and bring him back from life, from the death, and we're going to set up everything exactly the same so there's fewer variables, and let's just see if that guy commits the crime. You can't do that. In a court of law, you have to go and you have to say, okay, is it beyond a reasonable doubt? Right? We're going to see the evidence. We're going to see all of the evidence. Does the evidence match up beyond a reasonable doubt? And that's reliable testimony. So we have the legal standard. Is it, do we have the same standard for believing our faith that we would for convicting somebody of a crime? And I should say we should if we're, if we're trusting our entire lives on this, right? Luckily, God gives that to us. Reliable testimony, we have uh, Luke uh, was a Gentile. He ended up uh, following Jesus, uh, becoming a Christian after Jesus was died, resurrected. He was a, a disciple of the Apostle Paul. And Luke, because he was a Gentile, he wasn't familiar with all these prophecies of, of the Messiah and all that kind of stuff. And because he was actually coming into this faith, he wanted to make sure it was true. So he tells us in his letter, his, his, his gospel, exactly the process he used to make sure that these things were accurate. Because he was staking his, not only his life there, but his eternity on this. So he writes there at the very beginning, he says, Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us. Now this is important. Because we have copies of Luke that, pre- that are very, very old. And, and Luke starts out by saying, I'm not the oldest record of this. Like, people have already, lots of people have written about this, as you well know. The whole idea is understanding the gospel was not created thousands or even hundreds of years after Jesus came back. It, it was, we, the gospel was already accepted within years and decades. And he's saying, listen, other people have already seen this, and who wrote about these things? He said, well, it was just as they were handed down to us by those who were first eyewitnesses and servants of the word. So eyewitness testimony. There were lots of eyewitnesses. Jesus didn't do his miracles in secret. In fact, one of the neat things about the Gospel of Luke is that he says, at this time, at this place, this event took place. So the people around it could verify that. But I think it's interesting in the Gospel of Luke, he didn't say, I heard from eyewitness testimony. I'm a secondhand account. I heard these things from people who say they were eyewitnesses, and so I trust them. Luke goes on to say, he says, okay, with that in mind, since there are these eyewitness accounts, with that in mind, since I myself now have there carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know for certainty the things that you've been taught. He says, listen, I didn't just trust the eyewitnesses, I investigated it. And when did he do that? Well, we read in the gospel or the, the book of Acts where Luke was. He went back to Jerusalem and he spent a good deal of time there. So like when Luke, when he writes something, he doesn't just say, I heard this story. He wouldn't investigate it. So all of those events in Luke, Luke went out. He talked to Mary. He talked to the, to the person that was, that was born blind. And he says, uh, were you really born blind? Like, yeah, talk to the parents. Yeah, he was really born blind. Talk to the community. Yeah, really born blind. Do you see now? Yep, I see now. What happened? He asks the person, he investigates the person, he investigates the community. He wants to know for certain, are these things real? Because he had the chance to go and to investigate these things, and he could prove them real, then he wrote about them. So he could talk about other people. That was his method. It was really good investigative journalism, was what he did. In fact, you would think about who better to understand whether these events took place than a person who actually went back and investigated it who really had no vested interest in those events until they were proven true. And that was Luke. And so Luke goes and he finds that he talks to this guy named Lazarus who says, you know, I was dead for four days. And he talks to his sisters and say, yeah, he was dead for four days. And he talks to the people in Jerusalem who say, yeah, he was dead for four days. That's why the, uh, the temple priests were trying to kill him. We were in that room. <laughs> he investigates so we know for certainty. Eyewitness counts. That's pretty amazing. So the gospels say, trust me. They investigate this, and they start with saying we have investigated. By dealing directly with the people and places and events, we know that Luke was now able to, uh, to judge the authenticity of those events. And he himself said, I testify these things were true. And then later on in his life, he had the opportunity to give his life for those things as being true. He was given the opportunity to save his life very much if he would just say, oh, I got it wrong. But even on when he was being martyred, he said, no, these things are absolutely true. With absolute certainty, I know these things happened. He believed it because he studied it. Now, we say, what if Luke went out and investigated people and they were lying? Right? What would be a bad thing? Well, we have John. Was John a firsthand witness? Did John actually see Jesus firsthand? Because Luke investigates John. 
Well, John even writes about it. We know he's one of the apostles. He was with Jesus the whole time. And this is what John says. He says, listen, when I write about these things, he said, that which was from the beginning, right, Jesus, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at with our hands of touch, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. He said, these are senses, right? These are our five senses. He's like, listen, this is not some spiritual journey that I went on. Right? I saw Jesus, and I heard him with my these ears, right? And not only that, I touched him. Now, he's not talking about just the three years he was with Jesus in the ministry. This, in context, he's talking about the resurrection. He's like, I didn't just have a wishful thinking moment where I thought maybe, you know, as the wind blew by, I heard Jesus' voice. He says, I saw it with my eyes, I heard it with my ears, I touched those wounds with my hands. This is what I'm talking to you about. First-hand knowledge. Pretty powerful. We also have Jesus. People say, you know, Jesus was just a myth. The people ended up making him a god. But Jesus never really claimed to be God. Oh, really? Because I wonder how they could get more accurate biographical evidence about what Jesus would have taught and said versus the people who were actually with him, right? Who were dedicated to saying, this is what Jesus said, and we're going to give my life to what he had to say. We think that maybe they recorded what he had said accurately. I mean, they were the ones that were willing to give their life based upon what they said Jesus, who he was. These are the ones that were most dedicated to his teachings. And they were the ones that actually had firsthand knowledge. They were there. They didn't hear that Jesus might have said something. They were there and knew whether or not he said it. And so what are these disciples, what do they say that Jesus actually claimed about himself? Well, John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way, I'm the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you know my Father as well. And from now on, you do know him. And you have seen him. Think how audacious of a claim that is, especially in a monotheistic society. He says, I am God with you. If you've seen me, you see God. That's what he says. That's a pretty bold claim. Now, can you imagine, you might like me and think, Aaron, you're a good teacher, but if I stood up here and said, I am God, worship me, I wouldn't last very long, right? Do you think Jesus would have lasted very long? Just claiming to be God? In fact, that's one of the reasons why people tried to kill him. That's why the, the, the high priest turned him over to the, being crucified. He claimed to be God. It was his idea. And it wasn't just there. His disciples understood that. In his own ministry, Jesus takes his disciples up to this place called Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi was a Gentile area, the northern portion of Israel, and they go up and they climb up on this hill and they can look down on these cliffs where down below there is this temple of, of the god Pan, right? And behind the temple of god Pan was this big cave with poisonous gas that comes out of it and, and it's huge and it's really dark and they think that is the gateway to hell, so the gates of hell, right? And then on the walls around the, god, uh, the temple to Pan, there are all these carvings of all of these, these foreign gods on the walls. So the people that were Greek would have this spiritual journey. They would travel down there and they would see the gates to hell themselves and they would see all the foreign gods and all this kind of stuff. And Jesus takes his disciples up there and he takes them up there and he has them look down there at all those other gods, those false gods, and he says to his disciples, who do people say that I am? Because he'd been around with them for about two years, right? And he says, who do people say that I am? And the disciples said, well, some people think that you're just an awesome teacher, right? A great rabbi. And other people think that you're a prophet, maybe like, like Isaiah or something. And Jesus said, well, that's interesting. Now, mostly, if people said that to most preachers, like, man, some people think you're an awesome teacher. Other people think you're maybe a prophet. You're like, well, thank you, right? And also with Jesus, he's like, not good enough. So those disciples said, you've been with me. You've actually heard what I have to say. You've seen what I've done. Who do you say I am? And then Peter says, well, you're the Messiah. You're the son of the living God, clearly. And Jesus said, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. This is not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. If somebody, if, if I claim to be God, that would be bad. But if, say, one of you said, Aaron, I think you're just the best teacher ever. You are God. I'm going to worship you. And I said, well, as you should. I would instantly stop being a good preacher, wouldn't I? I mean, right there, that would be pretty much a disqualification of me being a good teacher. In fact, that would make me a, a megalomaniac, wouldn't it? Jesus accepts worship. And especially in a monotheistic culture, you don't do that. Even the angels don't accept worship. But Jesus said, yep, you're right. I am the Messiah. I am the Son of the living God. I am God the Son before you. You got it right. You see all these false gods? Bigger than them. And then he goes on to say, you know what? Because you follow the real God, even the gates of hell aren't going to be able to stop you. Because they're false gates anyway. 
I think it's pretty awesome. Now, Jesus claims to be God, which gives us a problem. There was this guy who was a, a college professor at, at a, 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 a very prestigious school in England, uh, Ivy League College, and uh, he had seen the world wars play out in his generation, and uh, he decided that there couldn't be a God. And he was a very intellectual man and uh, said, listen, there cannot be God. And I'm going to prove that there is no God. And so there at this Ivy League college in the midst of, of worn, destroyed Europe, he goes out to prove that God has never really existed and that Christianity was a farce. That's what he decided to do. And as he goes through, he begins to study and he begins to realize, he begins to study all this evidence. And the weight of the evidence was so huge, he eventually doesn't just become a Christian, but because in our modern times, one of the greatest defenders of the Christian faith. His name is C.S. Lewis. And C.S. Lewis would go on television and, and would, in the 1960s and he would go on and he would talk to people and say, listen, God is real and I'll tell you how I know because the evidence points to him. But C.S. Lewis, in one of his writings, he says, we have, a, we have this intellectual problem amongst a lot of the, the intellectual elites where they try to say that Jesus can just be a good moral teacher. He says, that's ridiculous. He says, no one can say the things that Jesus said and be a good moral teacher unless it's true, right? Unless he's really God, he can't be a good moral teacher. No one can say the things Jesus said and still be that. Either it's true or, or he's a crazy man. Because have you ever seen somebody who claimed to be God? You think, well, that's a nut job, right? I remember I was doing hospital billing. Occasionally, you know, you come across somebody who thinks that they had a Christ complex, right? And they really think that they're God. And we lock them up for a while and help them. Right? Did Jesus have the, the psychological the evidence the rest of his life, the psychological profile of a crazy man? Well, that would be a huge leap of faith because the teachings of Jesus have formed the, the very foundation for ethics for the last 2,000 years and rationality. The things that Jesus taught, even other people that don't even follow Christ say he was brilliant. And not only brilliant, but very, very sane. In fact, it's easy to pick out a crazy person normally, isn't it? Somebody claims to be a Christ person or, or a God, pretty quickly he doesn't have followers. But even if he has a few followers, once that person dies, nobody else follows him, right? If Jesus was a crazy man, how do you explain the continuation of the gospel? That he didn't have a few people following, but thousands, and then millions, and then billions. His writings and his teachings don't prove that he was like a, a crazy man. He seems very, very sane. Okay, so if he wasn't crazy, maybe he was just evil. Right? If Jesus knew he wasn't God, and he, he knew that wasn't there, but he wanted just to, to play God, and he was manipulating all of his disciples... Think how wicked that was. Because of what he taught, he even told his disciples, because of me, people are going to hate you. They're going to persecute you, they're going to kill you, but stay strong because I will raise you in the end. If he knew that was a lie, think of a horrible person that would be. Yeah, you're going to be tortured for this. But not only that, does Jesus have the profile of a psychotic, you know, egomaniac? Well, look at his life and his teachings. Did Jesus go, to, was he there for, for popularity? Now, even the Gospels themselves, and it blew the apostles' minds why Jesus did this. As soon as there became huge crowds, Jesus stopped going to those places because people were coming for the wrong reasons. He didn't want that. And not only did he not want popularity and fame that way, he had, he had these crazy teachings of things where he'd say, listen, I, even the Son of Man, even though I'm God, I didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus' uh, his disciples didn't come and just serve him all the time. Jesus went out and served the people. That's amazing. That doesn't look like the profile of an egomaniac. So much so that even the night before he was betrayed, Jesus goes and he takes his disciples and he says, I'm going to wash your feet. And he washes their feet, the most humiliating job in the house. And they had a hard time. The disciples were like, you can't even do this. He's like, I can and I will because I'm teaching you how to serve one another. Jesus was so much not just about his own power and other things like this, that he went to a cross to die for other people's crimes. When he was standing before Pontius Pilate, he could have made a, a military and a political play. He could have said, you know what, I'm innocent, and you know I'm innocent, and yeah, I'm, I'm a king like you say, right? But I'll work with you. He could have done that, but instead he stayed quiet, he stayed quiet and he let the people betray him. And why did he do that? He loved the people even who were crying for his death. How do we know that? Because when he was on the cross and they were nailing up there and all this stuff, he says, Father, forgive them. They don't understand what they're doing. 
He could have called his disciples out to, to hurt people when the night was he was arrested and Peter chops off the ear of, of, the, of one of those that were arresting him. He, he says, don't do that. And he even serves those that were hurting him. Even to the point where he was on the cross and he was being ridiculed by two criminals who were beside him. When one of those criminals comes to his senses and says, you know what, this guy isn't guilty. He says, you know what, I've, I know enough to know that you're actually who you claim to be. Please remember when you come to your kingdom. Jesus says, while he's hanging on the cross, to the guy who was just ridiculing him, says, you know what, okay. I, I promise you today you'll be with me in paradise. Does that sound like an egomaniac? An evil, wicked man? Nothing in Jesus' life and ministry points us in that direction. Rationally, when we look at him, he cannot be crazy and he cannot be wicked, which leaves us with one thing. He had to be telling the truth. But you know, anybody can claim to be God. So what's the evidence? Miracles. That's the evidence. Miracles are things that people can't do. That's why they're miracles. And that's why Jesus was given miracles. In fact, there was a good story about this that uh, we have recorded here in the, in the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus shows up, and there's this, uh, in, in the midst of a huge crowd, there's a bunch of people there, and there is a guy who is paralyzed. And everybody knows he's been paralyzed. He's been paralyzed for a very long time. And you just don't make up being paralyzed for years and years and years, hoping that somebody's going to show up so that you can do a magic trick, right? He's, je- he's legit paralyzed, and everybody knows it. The guy's laying there, and Jesus walks up to him and says, you know what? Your sins are forgiven. And, of course, everybody there was, was horrified by that. They're like, only God can forgive sins. And Jesus said, you're absolutely right. Only God can forgive sins. That's why I just did it. But he said, I'm going to prove it to you. So he says, okay, which is easier? To say your sins are forgiven or to say get up and walk? And of course, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven because how do you know, right? So so it's harder to say get up and walk. People can't just do that. So he says, there, I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. I want you to know that I'm who I claim to be. And so what does he do? He doesn't do some like ethereal spiritual thing saying, okay, he's free in his mind. No, he says to the guy, get up and walk. Take up your mat and go home. And the man got, take up his mat and then he went home. And then it says, and the people, they saw this, they knew it was real. It said they were filled with awe and they praised God and they had given, who had given man such authority. They understood that people can't just do this. That's why Jesus did some miracles. He didn't just do a few miracles. He did a lot of miracles. The Gospel of Matthew, the Gospel of Mark, the Gospel of Luke, the Gospel of John, all talk about amazing things that Jesus did. And then Luke checked it out. But the Gospel of Mark is my favorite because the Gospel of Mark, even the 16 chapters showing how Jesus is superior to all kinds of things. It gives all the evidence to the people who lived there at the time. And the first thing he said is, that we find the Gospel of, of Mark is that Jesus had authority over nature, which is a pretty big deal. We live here. We understand how big nature is. And Jesus could do things like this. I'm tranking a nap. Storm, be quiet. Right? You try doing that. It's not going to work. Not only that, he could walk on water. Can you do that? Yeah, when it's frozen. Try it when it's a storm. And so Jesus said, all right, water, you're going to hold me up right now. And water's like, okay. Not only that, fish, fish, listen to Jesus. Several times in his ministry, a bunch of different times, he could control animals. There's one time that Peter, who was a fisherman, knew how to do this well. Jesus was like, oh, let's play a little trick on him. Fish, don't get into his nets. And all the fish didn't get into his nets all night long. And Peter's like, oh, I can't fish, Urgh. right? Gets back to the shore, worst place to fish, right? Worst time of the day. And then what happens? Jesus says, hey, fisherman, Put your nets in the water. And Peter's like, now I've got to put up with this joker. But he's like, fine, I'm going to show this guy. You know, he doesn't know what he's talking about. Throws the nets in and Jesus is like, okay, fish now. And the fish, so many that it almost sinks his boat. <laughs> Jesus can control nature. Can you do that? Nobody can do that other than God. How about this? He didn't have control of nature. He had control over nature. Jesus showed he had power over natural law. I mean, he did some crazy stuff. Like, look at the feeding of the 5,000. There is no natural explanation, but there were 5,000 witnesses to see it. Five loaves, two fish. Everybody eats two full and beyond, and they have more leftovers than they started out with. There is no scientific explanation for that. He made matter out of nothing, and he did it more than once. My favorite, turn water into wine. He's like, H2O, you're improved, right? That's <laughs> what he did. He didn't need grapes. He didn't need time. But they tasted like they had been well-aged. He didn't just change the chemical compound. He changed time itself. Think about that. He had power not just over nature, but he had authority over the spiritual world as well. Jesus was casting out demons, and it wasn't even hard for him. He didn't have to fight. In fact, there was one time, there was this guy who had so many demons, it was actually an army of demons. Can you imagine a whole army of demons? That's bad. A whole army of demons in this dude. And the whole army of demons sees Jesus and runs up to surrender without even fighting. 
runs over to him and says, ah, don't hurt us. And Jesus is like, fine, go live in those pigs. And so they go into the pigs. He didn't have to, it wasn't even hard for him. He not only had power over the, over the spiritual world, but he had power over illness. Jesus was healing people that people would, would like come up and he would lay his hands on him and heal him. He would dunk him sometimes and heal him. He would spit on him sometimes and heal him. So it didn't matter. He did all kinds of cool stuff how he healed. Sometimes he would just be walking by and the hem of his garment would hit somebody and boom, healed. He had power to heal. Even so much so, he didn't be present. There was one time there was a soldier that came up to him and said, one of my kids is sick, really sick. Can you heal him? And then Jesus says, all right, I'll come over. And the guy says, I'm a commander. I know that you don't have to always be there. You just say it's going to be done. It's going to be done. You have authority. Do it. So Jesus is like, okay, your family's healthy. And he was that very hour. See, Jesus has authority over all kinds of things to the point, not just over sickness, but over death itself. Three verified stories where Jesus heals people in public who were dead. That's a pretty big healing. First one was a little girl just freshly dead. You know, doesn't do CPR or anything like that. Just says, get up. and She's fine. Another time, guy being carried out of town. He's already dead. He's already cleaned up. He's all wrapped up, ready to be, you know, dropped in the tomb, right? All on his way out of town, Jesus just sees it, what's happened. And he sees that he's got a widow mom and he's like, has compassion. So he tells the guy, hey, get up. And the guy gets up. And if that wasn't good enough, that he got a buddy named Lazarus. Lazarus dies. Put him into a tomb for four days. You know somebody's dead when they're four days rotten in a tomb. And Jesus shows up and opens the tomb and says, Hey, Lazarus, get out here. And Lazarus shows up. And Lazarus, by the way, just lived right outside of Jerusalem there. So everybody got to see him. That's pretty amazing. Jesus has power even over death. See, people can't do that. But God can. So when Jesus claims to be God, he backed it up with his actions. And his actions were backed up in public so people would know. But you know, I think the best uh, miracle of all was the resurrection. It's the most attested miracle of all, too. Succeeding the greatest miracle of all time. It's one thing to heal somebody else when they're dead. Entirely different to heal yourself. And so Christianity, even the gospel says it rises and falls on this one miracle. If Jesus didn't raise from the dead, we believe in a lie. Because if Jesus didn't raise from the dead, he's not God. But if he's God, he couldn't stay in the tomb. And so Paul says, listen, if it's not true, everything we've done is worthless. But he says, but it is true, and you know it's true. And he's talking to people of first-hand knowledge. So much evidence for the resurrection is huge. And I think that's maybe why God gave us so much evidence of the resurrection so that we would know the validity of what we believe. You know, in, in the Gospel of Acts, how do we know the, God, the resurrection took through? Well, you could get your PhD in this, but I'll just give you just a real brief thing right here. In the Gospel of Acts, Luke writes, After Jesus' suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appealed to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. Jesus didn't just show up in a wisp of cloud or a reflection on a lake. He showed up to them not just for a day or a weekend. Think about if Jesus showed up today, sat next to you at church, showed up, said, hey, I'm Jesus. And you're like, hey, I went to meet you. And you look and he's got like the wounds in his hand. He says, yep, I'm back, right? You'd be like, for the rest of your life, you'd be very convinced that he's real, right? Just that short of an interaction, wouldn't it be? Jesus hung out with his disciples for 40 days because they needed to know to know that they knew that they knew that it wasn't their hallucination. And he, didn't he just show up? He said he presented himself to them. Here I am. And then he gave many convincing proofs. Like what? Well, things like this. See these wounds that you saw me get? Touch them. See, they're real. Right? He did things like this. Oh, you're having some fish? Let me have some of that fish. Why? Because ghosts don't eat. Right? He ate with them. He talked with them. And all this, he gave them for 40 days. Think how long 40 days is. That's much longer than just a, a meeting or a weekend. That's a long time. Over and over and over again, he's talking to them and he's teaching them and they knew him. They lived with him for three years. They would have known whether or not it's him. And he didn't just go from a distance. He was right up with them. And it wasn't just the 12. There was even, there was one point, he showed up to 500 of them at the same time. And he didn't just show up to these guys. He was in Jerusalem where he was crucified. And he walked around the city of Jerusalem to the people who crucified him and he said, I'm back. Right? They are the ones that knew he was dead. How do we know this? Because in Pentecost, just a month later, in Jerusalem, where they killed Jesus and his empty tomb was, we have 3,000 people say, I'm convinced. Many of which were priests. And when they accepted Jesus, they knew that they were accepting. But when, you, when, they, when the whole culture goes to kill a guy, it's pretty much set, settled that, that culture doesn't like that movement. Right? So in Jerusalem, if they killed Jesus, it'd be pretty well settled. It'd be unpopular to be a Christian, to be a follower of Jesus, right? 
for having 3,000 people saying, I'm willing to risk my life for this, when they could have just walked to the tomb themselves if, it was, if he was body was still in there, is ridiculous. That would take more faith for me to believe that even one person would do that much, that's 3,000. But the fact that many priests also came and they said, this is the Messiah that the, the prophecies were pointing to. And we know it's true because we've seen him. That's pretty fantastic. It's pretty good evidence. You see, when we start looking at the evidence of the faith, we recognize that our faith is a reasonable faith. And this is what I mean by that. It takes more faith to disbelieve the gospel than it does to believe it. When I came to that point, when I investigated different religions and all those types of things, and I did my own study, when I realized that the weight of evidence for Christianity so outweighs the evidence against it, I had to have more faith to, to reject Christianity. I just don't have enough faith not to be a Christian. And I don't have to see Jesus physically now because I have so much other great evidence. In fact, even Jesus said that to Thomas. You believe how much even greater that you're going to have for those who don't have to see this and also still believe. It doesn't mean they throw their brains out. It means that God gave us more than enough credible evidence. And so having our faith means that we have confidence in what we hope for, right? Our faith is reasonable. But it also means then we can have assurance about the things that we don't know, we haven't seen. Right? So we have assurance. What does that mean? I have confidence that Jesus came, that he is God, that he died on the cross for our sins, that he came back. Right? I have confidence that he said what he said, which means that I can have assurance about the things that I can't test yet, things that I haven't, we haven't seen. One of those things is our salvation. Right? Salvation is a huge thing that I know that I've got, I can have assurance in. Because Jesus came back, because he, he, he rose from the dead, because he did these things, I know that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How do I know that? Because Jesus himself said, I, if anyone who believes in me will be saved, right? Will not perish, but have eternal life. I think I can trust Jesus to have the authority to save me. So I have confidence in that, so I don't walk around the rest of my life hoping that somehow I'm going to be saved. I have assurance there. Not just in my salvation, but I also have this assurance of Jesus' return. He said, if I go prepare a place for you, I'm going to come back and take you to be with me so that you also may be where I am. That's how we know Jesus is coming back, because he said, I'm going to. And if Jesus came the first time with all those 300 prophecies, I certainly have a lot of confidence that he's going to come back. And not only do I have assurance that he's coming back, but then I also have assurance of the eternal kingdom. There's a kingdom that he's bringing with them, and he said, I'm going to. In fact, Peter, his disciple, he says uh, that I'm going, when I go, uh, when I come back, you're going to be well grieved into this eternal kingdom with me. And so what we have, we've been called to faith. Christians have been called to faith. Not a trust me story, because faith is not a trust me. Faith is confidence, assur- confidence about what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. So you have confidence in what you hope for. That's why in Christianity we look to the cross. That's why we celebrate it every week. That's why we remember it because we remember this absolutely happened. And if that happens, right, I cannot be moved. There's nothing I'm worried about life that somehow there be some scientific discovery that's going to disprove my faith. Jesus already came, already proved himself. Reality will back him up. And because I have a confidence in what I hope for, now I have the assurance about what I don't see. And that is the power of our faith today. See, it's the assurance about what I do not see. Is, is going back and saying, listen, God is, uh, when I'm going through the deep valleys of faith, when, when my God seems quiet and I'm, I'm talking to him, I'm praying, and I'm not hearing, I know that the, the assurance that I have is that he's not gone. Because Jesus promised I'm with you always, even at the end of the age, I have assurance that he's with me. But when life is hard, I understand that God has a purpose in it for me in Christ because the, the scriptures who I have a confidence and now assurance in says, listen, God is working to get all things together for the good of those that love me and called according to my purpose. So I have assurance. I can live this life boldly and without fear. And that's what allows me to overcome the difficulties in this life and to live with purpose for him. We have been called to faith. And next week we're going to talk about what do we do with that faith. But this week we'll talk about what are you doing, how do you take the next steps. So if you would take your connection card out, this lovely green card on the back side, I've got some next steps for you and to live as a faith, person of faith. And on the back side, one of the things we want to do is, is maybe what you need to do this week, it's real simple. Maybe just be memorizing Hebrews 11.1. 1. Maybe you need to remind yourself that it's not a trust me story. The faith is confidence in what we hope for. Look at the evidence. Go and test it. Maybe that's what you remember. That our faith is not built upon stories, but upon reality. Backed up in history, the evidence points to it. So that way you can have assurance in those other areas in life that we, we have, can have assurance as we live a life with joy and victory in this world, knowing that Jesus is coming back. Maybe that's what you need to have is that memory verse. It's a great anchor for us. Or maybe what you need to do, maybe you say, all right, I'm interested in this. I'd like to read the gospel. If you want to see what Jesus actually said, not what people say that he said, but what Jesus actually said by the people who would know most, read the gospel. Who was he? What did he do? 
Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, pick your one. They're all good. They talk about this amazing guy and his amazing teachings because he was more than a man. Or maybe what you need to do is you want to talk to a pastor. You say, you know what? What you talked about, Aaron, is interesting. I would like to know more. And I've got questions about it. Well, I'm kind of passionate about this, right? (laughs) I've staked my eternity on these things and I've tested it thoroughly before I did that because I'm not crazy. If you want to talk to me about it, Let's do. Let's, let's, have, let's have coffee. We'll answer your questions. I don't have all the answers, but I certainly know the one who does, and I know how to find a lot of good answers too. So uh, let's, let's get together. Or maybe this. Maybe what you need to do is, you know what? I've been following Jesus for a long time, but I haven't been treating him as the God that I have faith that I know that he is. Maybe what you need to do is say, listen, Jesus isn't just to make me feel better. He's not just fire insurance. I'm called to follow him. He's really God. And if he's God, then I need to start every day. I need to really worship him. That's what I need to do. Stop playing footsie with the Almighty because he did all the things to prove that he's real. I have a responsibility now to follow. And if that's you, maybe you make that decision. You say, I'm going to worship Jesus daily. I'm going to start my day, put him in the center of my life, make my life revolve around his thing. When I say, your will be done, your kingdom come, I actually mean it. (laughs) And I stop praying for my kingdom to come and my will be done. Maybe that's where we begin. Or maybe there's something else that you have. Uh, another commitment, something else, let me know. As a pastor, I'd love to support you. Or maybe you have this, maybe there's another commitment over here that you'd like to let me know about. If you have any of those, let me have your contact information so I can get a hold of you. Or if you have a prayer request, because this God, he is real. And he's present. He said, I'm with you always. And he told us to pray. He told us to ask him and talk to him and invite him into our life. And powerful things happen when we do. So if you have a prayer request, write it down. Know that we'll be joining you this week in prayer. And it's awesome to see how God, uh, he makes himself manifest amongst us. It's pretty cool. All right, so let's pray for these commitments and also for our tithes as the, as the worship team comes out. Then I want you to take those connection cards and put them in the offering baskets as they're passed. All right, let's pray. Father God, thank you for the reality of you. The fact is that you said that you are the way and the truth in the life. And Father, I think it's a great thing because we know that truth is that which corresponds to reality. And Father, if you're true, then we know that also that reality corresponds to you. That what we read in Scripture must be backed up. It is what is actually true. In fact, you said that, that uh, you called yourself light. It overcomes darkness. You said you want truth to be exposed. I thank you. You're a God that doesn't just say, hey, trust me, and then ridicules us when we have questions. But like Thomas, when he said, I need to actually see it, you show up and give us the evidence. Lord, you're you're super kind in that. I pray that you would help us be a people that are drawn to that faith, to have confidence in what we hope for. So, Father, as we have confidence in Father, I pray that you also give us the boldness to have assurance about what we don't see. Father, your love and your care and and your work in our lives and your purpose for us. Let us have assurance about those things that we can live faithfully today. Father, these commitments that we make, Lord, I pray that you help us to walk faithfully in those. And Lord, that we could treat you as the God and the Savior that you really are. And in this, Father, we pray that not only we know that our lives will be better when we follow you, but Father, that we would live lives of hope and peace in this world. That we have the, the capacity to care for those that are difficult to love our enemies and to forgive those who deserve it least because we were forgiven even when we deserved it least. So, Father, build your kingdom in us and help us to build your kingdom here in Estes. And, Father, as you do that, I pray also for our tithes and our offerings. Thank you for the, the opportunity to invest in that kingdom. Use these gifts. Grow your kingdom mightily in love. We pray in Christ's powerful name. Amen.